When the Twin Towers came down and the Queen ordered that Buckingham Palace Guard play not God Save the Queen but the American National Anthem, it was an image that anyone who saw it won't soon forget. She also said that the price of love is grief, which is a profound message. The more that you love, the more it hurts when it gets taken away from you. Maria, over decades now, how has your understanding of the nature of grief changed? I think when I began in the field in my late 20s, I had a hope, if not a fantasy, that there was a way to protect myself and my clients against the harsher realities of grief. It's never a question of how you're going to experience grief. Grief is, we love what's mortal. We love the planet, we love beings, we love human beings, and all of which are mortal and will fade and pass. And so given that, we must learn a way to accept that grief will simply be part of the journey. And to take away a little of the the fear of, of pain is a lot of the work that I'm doing these days in order that when the pain comes, it can be held as more a natural part of the journey. But how can you ever prepare an individual to lose their soulmate or a parent to lose a child? That's a phenomenal question. It really isn't preparatory in advance in the particular circumstance that you're talking about. It's more about developing capacity along the way with the little assaults and little injuries and awareness. Here's the positive psychology. Awareness of one's strengths and one's gifts and one's values and meanings and ability to connect that sustains you when the bigger assault comes. You know, one of the hardest moments in my life, I lost my younger brother in six years ago. He was oh 48 years old to a very quick cancer, 10 weeks. And one of the most courageous things we did was to be able to say to him, it's, it's okay. We've got your kids. We've got your wife. And because watching my brother in, in bone-wrenching pain psychological and physical pain, it suddenly became the greatest act of love we could give him was to say, it's okay to leave, knowing that our pain was just at the beginning of its journey. And uh, we see that kind of courage and bravery all the time. I also see families fall apart. You know, mothers and fathers never recover from the loss of their children, and their life just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think, you know, all I think the best of us can do is honor that there are some pains that will bring you to your knees and it, it may take a few lifetimes to find your way back. Did your work prepare you for your loss? Yes, my, my work absolutely prepared me to a certain extent. And the expression I use is in states of deep grief, everybody goes a little bit to crazy town. And I went to crazy town and my brain could not orient around time. I literally thought my childhood did, hadn't happened because if it had happened, it would have added up to a different future. Intellectually, I knew, okay, that's crazy. But the potency of the belief system around this loss is profound. Our brains are protective and, and they also, you know, they go a little off kilter. Yes. You know, Frankel in the Holocaust, Victor Frankel, spent time in three different concentration camps, lost almost everyone except for one 
relative and was able to navigate a particular moment in the concentration camp when he made a conscious decision to stop ruminating on the thoughts that were draining to him, such as, am I going to have enough to eat today, and really change his cognition to imagine teaching how we survive the holocausts of our life intact. And the central, most resilience-building question I think we have from the last century is his question, which is to stop saying, why me? Why is this happening? Why is there evil? But who am I in the presence of this? And to live into that question, who am I as a sister who's lost someone or a daughter who's lost someone or a young man who has kind of lost his way for a while? You know, who am I now? That's where I attempt to bring my consultees to, not is this right or wrong, how you're feeling about grief, but who are you becoming or who would you long to become even with this great pain? Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Is there something kids, you've, the kids you've worked with who are terminally ill, is there something they can teach the grown-ups about resilience? Oh, I'll tell you. They, yes. <laughs> you know, one of the most beautiful lessons I learned, and this is particularly from the younger kids, not the teenagers, is that, that their innocence is often protective, they don't agonize over, is the chemotherapy going to work? Am I going to not have babies one day because I had too much radiation? You know, are people going to make fun of me? They're much more present day focused. And it turns out that ability to stay focused in the present moment is tremendously life-giving and enlivening for us adults in many ways. So that was one. Two is the delight in following, tracking what they love, their ability to play or notice what they love and go for it for most children. Many of us as adults have forgotten what brings us joy or makes us laugh or makes us feel just at peace, you know, like kick back and at peace kind of thing. And so their ability to track what they love, tremendously useful in resilience building. And then the last point I would make is that with children, I saw time and time and time again a willingness to be experience a very difficult moment and three minutes later be laughing. Like, just let their emotions be what they are, flow in and flow out. Not stay attached to being identified as the miserable kid or the happy kid, but just they flow in and flow out. Tell me um, also, Maria, about the Jewish cultural tradition of, uh, of laughing every time there's grief and also shedding a tear every time there's laughter. Is that cycle uh, one that can sustain you know, the older I get, the more I come to appreciate the capacity to hold opposite truths in the same moment, that that really life asks us to hold suffering and joy as complete when together. You know, everything beautiful grows out of debris in the natural kingdoms, and I think that's also true emotionally and psychologically, that often our greatest gifts come from the place that we've been wounded and hurt. And I think the Jewish tradition and many traditions attempt to get close to that wisdom that there there is no separation. Indeed, there's not. And one of the reasons I cheekily ask is because I found some audio that captures it from the extraordinary Theodore Bickel, who played Tevye from Fiddler on the Roof like more than 2,000 times. Let's just have a listen. Ah, how nice to see you. A lot of water has flowed under the bridge since the last time. And what haven't we been through since then? Riots, floods, big troubles, small troubles. Aye, and what we go through with our children, that's no laughing matter. But as the saying goes, you have to survive, even if it kills you. So let's talk about cheerful things. 
What do you hear about the cholera epidemic in Odessa? Theodore Bickel, <laughs> laughing and crying, crying and laughing. That's life. And that's a wrap for God Forbid this week. Uh, so a, a very big thank you to our panel. Some, some heavy topics covered. Dr. Maria Siwa, an expert in resilience and grief and, and positive psychology. Thank you so much. Wonderful to have you. Thank you. And Sue Langley, a consultant, a teacher, researcher, connections between the emotional intelligence, neuroscience, positive psychology. Sue Langley, great to have you on the God Forbid panel. It's a pleasure. And uh, Evan Sato, it was great to hear your stories and insights from uh, the monastery, the, the wooden hut you lived in for three months, and the lessons since then. Uh, Google happiness compass to find out what you're doing, hey? Mm. It's never been a more exciting time to be an Australian. <laughs>